This is episode 497 of the AWS podcast, released on December 26, 2021. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello everyone and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Lesher here with you. Great to have you back and I'm joined by a very special guest, a return guest in fact, Mr. Paul Hawkins, who's a now a principal at the Office of the Chief Information Security Officer here at Amazon Web Services. G'day Paul, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you Simon? I am well and I'm very excited to have you come on and speak to us. Now in your previous incarnation, you came on and spoke to us as a, one of our security specialists, but you've changed your role a little bit more to be right in the office of the CISO. So, so you're officially part of the Department of No. Well, really part of the Department of how can we help you understand what you need to do and is there anything that you need to learn around how you can enable your business through security? which is less snappy than it's the department. Not, yeah, it's no. not as snappy, <laughs> but, but it is funny because the, the topic of our, of our conversation today is we're going to talk about security teams and culture and the way security works with the rest of the organization, et cetera. And I think it's really interesting that for many people, their, their mental model and in, in some cases their actual experience is security as the department of no. But we're seeing a significant shift and I've seen it over the last few years where it's the security specialists and security uh, departments that are actually driving change, um, but they want change with security rather than change for its own sake. But before we get into all that, just remind us, Paul, of, of a bit about your background and, and why you're talking to us today. Um, well, I've ended up in the office of the CISO, which is um, helping scale our actual CISO, Steve Schmidt, um, helping customers around the globe understand how to be more secure in the cloud, understand how the platform works, and supporting the wider field team of security specialists and generalist account SAs and account teams who help the thousands of customers that we have. So it's it's still a, a security specialist role. Um, it allows me to be um, deeper with service teams, deeper with the security org around how we as AWS think about security and helping customers understand that. So it's, it's still you know, the, the thing that I really love, which is helping customers be more secure, but enabling to do it in a way that's faster, um, enabling better decision-making, enable their businesses to ship um, features for their customers. And before AWS, I used to work for a bank. So I've been on the customer side of this as well, which really helps with those kind of empathy with customers because I, I know what they're going through. Absolutely. It's not uh, it's not as easy as it looks from the outside. And, and I guess let's start with maybe th- that concept of of. What is from a well from a security department specialist CISO perspective? What is the job of security? You know, we, we throw that word around a lot. It means different things to different people. From a CISO's perspective, what's the job? Um, so kind of you own the security posture of an organisation. So you're kind of ultimately responsible for making sure the organisation is working in a secure way, um, aligning with the risk appetite of the business, doing the right things but also building the capability that allows the wider business to make those informed decisions. Because the security part of any organization is typically a smaller number of humans than the dev part of the organization or the workloads part of the organization or the, the, the people who actually build stuff. So as those folks don't actually work for you, you can't kind of hit them over the head with a stick and say, you must do these things. Um, you have to make it easier for them to make the right decision. And I think it's it's helping people understand what they're responsible for and helping them understand that they can come to security for assistance. And that's something that's very key to how we operate security within AWS. 
anyone who's um, joined AWS and been onboarded will hear the, if you think you have a security problem, cut a set of two ticket to SecOps. We would much rather hear about something and downgrade it than not hear about something. So it's, it's very much a come to us and we will help kind of mindset. Now, now this, is, this is a shift, as, as I mentioned. You know, there, there, there was a time where security was perceived, whether truthfully or not, as a place that was charged with saying, don't touch anything, don't do anything, you don't have access to anything, don't change anything. But the reality of the threat landscape means that security is not a static thing. It's not a, it's not a wall. It's not guards and gates. It's a lot more now. Yeah, and you can't just kind of have a, a point in time security assessment say we're done and walk away. And equally, you can't be a gate at the end of a process that is optimized for getting people not to do stuff. Because ultimately, customer requirements change, technology evolves, you learn new things. People need to ship and people need to ship features, whether it's to fix issues they've discovered or because there are new features going out. And you know, as you say, the world evolves and changes and we see different things and we learn more about how we build and how we ship and how the, 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 the wider environment changes. So we need to be able to react to that. And if we're very much, no, don't change anything, that actually hinders us on our mission to ship securely and get awesome features in the hands of our customers. I think the other interesting thing there is it's, it's very much the Jurassic Park style, nature finds a way. And so if security says no, then you do end up with those servers under desks that make security people freak out or not. Yeah, I, I would much rather as a security person have people come to us so we can work together to, you know, ultimately the business has decided that there is value in building a particular application. If we can help them do it in a way that's safer, that's much better than people thinking, oh, security is going to say no. I'm not even going to try and talk to them or try and go around the process. I, if I can't see it, I can't help. So let's then get into the guts of this because we, we, we want to talk about security culture and good security culture. And the reason why we talk about culture is, as you said, most security teams are relatively small. They're, they're potentially a quote-unquote bottleneck of a process of an organization. So why is a good security culture important? But more importantly, what does it look like? I think it's important because it drives collaboration and it drives that sense of we're all trying to achieve the same thing. We work for an organization, no AWS or no customers, where we're trying to build something that helps our customers or your customers or and we're trying to get to a stage where we actually release software. And we're just different parts of that flow. So Having a good security culture starts off with realizing that we're all trying to solve the same thing, so we should work together, and it's not an adversarial relationship. And I think that then leads to the fact that once we realize that we're actually collaborating, we can't know everything. I can't know everything about the, the detail of how an application works. That's what the, the workload team or the application owners do. I mean, they're deeply engaged with the things they build, but I can't expect them to be SMEs in a domain that's maybe outside of their core specialization. So that's where we as security SMEs come in to help them understand the context and help them understand where they need to prioritize their effort to help us as an organization achieve our overall goal. So I think that a good security culture is one that's collaborative. It's one where the security organization is very transparent about communicating what it expects from people. I think that's, I think, I think on there, I think that's a, that's a really good call out because I think that if, if you're working in an organization where that relationship doesn't exist, then it's incumbent on everyone to, to promote that relationship. Because often when I see what I would call dysfunctional teams, 
often, you know, you talk to the security folks are like, oh, those developers, they're a bunch of cowboys. And then you talk to the developers and they're like, oh, those security folks in their ivory tower, they have no ID. And it's just, they haven't spoken to one another and there's no empathy as to the challenges that each group has to face. And and this is why this, this ability to sit down together and get a degree of understanding of each other's world tends to, to leaven that a lot. But adding to that, it kind of has to come from the top, doesn't it? Like you, you need that executive buy-in to say, no, this is how we're going to work. This is our way of working, not by exception. Yeah. And there's a couple of um, really interesting things you brought up there. We have leadership principles within Amazon, but we also have tenants and each team has their own tenants. And the principal engineering community has a tenant that I really like. And Eric Brown, one of our most senior security folks has talked about this. And that, that tenant is lead with empathy. So you know, you lead and you provide guidance, but you also have empathy for the, the teams that you're working with and empathy for the problems they're trying to solve. And I think that's something to, to bear in mind that really helps as you go through this, this journey. And the other thing was um, guidance from the top. So one of the reasons that AWS is able to have this positive security culture is that our senior leaders communicate to the whole business that it's important. It's not just coming from the security org, it's coming from our CEO and that's something that's kind of instilled into all of us that security is everyone's job and it's important for us to support our customers. So there's a combination of things there. So let's talk about something I think has, has been a real um, accelerant to the ability to have security be the, the department of yes versus the department of no and help move faster but more securely. And that's that's the, the significantly different degree of automation available in the security domain. But more importantly, a focus on uh more proactive or preemptive controls as well as near real-time response to threats rather than that traditional tick and flick audit, she'll be right, mate, approach we took in the past. Yeah, I think it's a way of being able to split up the responsibility for delivering the security outcomes. And the kind of traditional view is that um, somebody builds an application, maybe they put a Visio diagram together, they engage the security function who does a risk and controls assessment, you kind of tell people what they've done wrong right at the end and tell them to go and fix it. And that's a very human interaction and also sometimes quite a frustrating experience if you're just trying to get something shipped and then someone turns up at the last minute and says, oh, you haven't done these things, but I had never told you that you were supposed to do these things. I'm just telling you you haven't done them now. Whereas with cloud and automation and a more decentralized uh, view of the world, you can build automation that gives people fast feedback when they're heading, heading towards the edges of what is desirable in terms of configuration. So a good example is that you have infrastructure as code that defines your environment. Stage one is that means that dev looks like test looks like prod. So the thing that you ship is actually the thing you test, which is a huge win just generally. But it also means that you can validate these templates against some basic configuration. And if you can validate the templates automatically, you can put that in a pipeline. So when a developer commits some code and they push into their environment, that pipeline can have that validation. And if there's configuration that's undesirable, you can feed back to the developer at the time that they are doing that work. So a human doesn't need to be involved to look at some document and say, oh, you've, you've not encrypted the volumes at rest, for example. That automated response can go back to the developer. They fix it when they're in the headspace but you're also giving people the option to prioritize fixing it within the window of, of their work. So you say, before you promote to the test environment, you must meet this configuration, but I'm going to give you a, a window of when you're working to actually fix that up. So you're not 
impacting people's work as much. So it becomes easier for people to just build into the way they work. And then as you learn more things, as you have more human conversations, you identify more things that can be programmatically tested and you build more automation into the process. So you make it easier for people to self-serve the security guidance. And then you reserve the high value conversations that humans have with other humans for things that are much trickier to solve. So Paul, are you saying that it's it's more fun to do it that way than to have someone up at two in the morning trying to apply a change in a domain they're not very familiar with and they're very tired that could uh, mean you're yeah, encrypted ex- or not? exactly. <laughs> are you telling me this is yeah, a better approach? Automate as much as possible because <laughs> humans are very good at some things, but consistently, repeatedly doing the, the same task a hundred times is not one of them. I would agree. And, and I think the other nice thing is that we, we have this opportunity to create these very safe running rails for, for teams to work under. And so when I look at, you know, the, the posture of a customer and how a customer would set up their, you know, their AWS accounts and their organization, et cetera, things like service control policies, giving you that really robust control of saying, you can do this, you can't do that. And if I say you can't do that, you definitely can't do it type thing, uh, means that people aren't accidentally bumping into things. They kind of know what's required. Having things like config to check check rules in the organization are really important. Using things like Security Hub to make sure you've got the basics turned on. You know, uh, for a lot of customers, I, I see how they're operating. It's like, well, you know, first things first, turn on CloudTrail, turn on Guard Duty, uh, make sure you have an alerting system that someone's actually paying attention to. That's another one I see quite a lot. You know, there's just some, some fundamental things that are actually really quick and easy to do that give you almost a top shelf security posture with very little effort compared to five yeah, years ago. And I really, really, really like the fact that you touched on turn on CloudTrail, turn on Guard Duty and send findings to someone who's going to action them. And that means that you, you get a response, but also I have this kind of um, rule of threes. So the first time you see an event, you probably don't have it automated or you don't have the response automated. So you respond to the event. Second time the event happens, um, you can then say, oh, my first response was you know, what we want to do all of the time when I see this event. By the time the third, the third time the event happens, you should have automated it. And then that way you iteratively get better at responding to unexpected activities in your environment. But services like Guard Duty are amazing in terms of you turn it on, you can turn it on at the organization level. So when you create a new AWS account, it gets enabled. You can plug it into a ticketing system. You can plug it into Slack. You can plug it into a paging system. And it does a lot of the heavy lifting for you. And if you see findings which are prioritized as high, medium, and low, it's, it's something that's actionable. And then you can do the next most important task, which is why did that event occur? Is this something that I could have prevented? And that feedback loop, so go back from, oh, I, I saw a guard, high guard, guard duty finding. What, what was my configuration that I needed to have in place that would prevent that from happening? And that's the way that you drive the improvement in your security posture. And also the, the, the culture enables you to do that because you have the concept of learning from mistakes. And that's one of the things that AWS is really good at. We have this correction of error process. We have a, a no blame culture where something happens because as Werner Vogel says, things break all the time. We want to know what was the root cause of the, the failure? What was the root cause of something breaking? What are the technology configurations that we can put in place to prevent it happening again? So that learning from things is super important in terms of improving your posture. And let's talk about that no blame culture concept. It's, it's been talked about a lot, but I think it's really important. I don't think it's pervasive yet because, you know, if we look at how we encourage an organization to have a positive security culture, it means 
we accept that mistakes will happen and that problems will happen and, and we judge ourselves by A, how quickly we respond and how appropriately we respond, but B, what we put in place to avoid it happening in the future. And still to this day, we see examples of organisations where they throw someone under the bus. You know, someone did the wrong thing or ran a script they shouldn't have run or set a password wrong or just did something silly, quote unquote. Um, and so we're going to get rid of that person and we fix the problem. Whereas certainly at Amazon, our view is it is never a person's fault. It's always a process problem. Now, the person may have executed something incorrectly because of the process, but we can't fix the person. We're going to fix the process. So let's, let's maybe unpack that a little bit more because it's, it's, it's just so important because I think as humans, we're kind of programmed to look for someone to blame, aren't we? Like <laughs> whose fault was it? Who, yeah, who, and it, it's who a very human up? thing to do. And it's a very easy thing to do because you can kind of, it's easy to say, so-and-so pushed this configuration that broke something. And that is a, no, can be a fact. That person did push that configuration and a, a failure occurred. And we then recovered from the failure because we've got good monitoring. We called it, we've got metrics and the, the graph went from zero to one and we somebody automatically got paged and we fixed it. And we build for resilience, so it didn't have as much of an impact as it could have done. But instead of saying that person pushed that script or pushed that configuration, that's bad. The question we want to ask is, why was there a dependency on a human pushing some configuration? What didn't we build that meant that this could have been done automatically? And what was the validation that didn't happen that confirmed that the change was within bounds what haven't we built yet that meant that that change was done safely? And that's the, that's the learning. It's the, like the thing happened and you can't go back in time and, and change that, but you can identify, you know, is there a better way of shipping changes? Where is our automation kind of not, as, not where it needs to be? Mm, exactly. And I think, I think the other element that we need to remember, and you know, we've all made mistakes in IT and made them at scale. And I personally have done that. And there's this sort of, creeping cold hot feeling at the back of your neck that you get when you've hit enter and you realize not what is happening is what you thought was going to happen and stuff's going to go bad and it's going to take a long time to fix and everyone's going to be real upset and so if you consider the person that got to press the enter key and and is living with the the results of that um they don't need more blame (laughs) they're probably beating themselves up more than anyone else whereas as you say they shouldn't be but we need to be empathetic and and learn from that that whole process and, and be be understanding of the fact that that person was yeah, put into I, an impossible situation. I remember situation. from a long time ago, the early part of my career, I was a, an operator working on a 24-7 bridge and we had to do um, kind of scheduled reboots for um, some servers that were remote. And I accidentally, because it was three in the morning and I was kind of trying to plow through the manually rebooting 50 servers or whatever it was, I did shut down rather than shut down and restart. And pretty much exactly as you described, as soon as I hit the enter key, I realized that I'd selected the wrong option. Unfortunately, the server was in a remote location, so I had to page somebody from the country where the server was located and they had to drive three hours to go and hit the switch. So I very much understand the um, the kind of Oh, I've done something wrong. <laughs> that feeling. But it wasn't, you know, it, 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 was, it was your fault, but it wasn't your fault. Like the, the question is, if, if you could issue a command that could turn off a server that meant someone had to get out of bed and physically reboot it, the problem is the exactly. interface, not the user. And it's kind of doing <laughs> the, 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 the why did this happen is, well, the options were shut down completely or shut down and restart. If our task is rebooting servers for an operational reason, Maybe we need automation that 
if you trigger it, only restarts the server, does not shut down the server. So you remove the, the human decision. Spot on. Remove the risk, exactly. So, so how do customers get to this sort of more optimistic, enabled mindset, given that they've got day jobs that they're, they're running with, you know, the current state? How do they move to that future state that they'd like to get to? Um, I think there's two kind of areas to focus on. One is the security foundations. And the other one is be aware and comfortable that this is an iterative process and that you can't fix everything all at once. Um, when I talk to customers, um, a lot of customers have the same kind of set of questions or their questions are, are based on the same thing, which is uh, security folks and customers have got tens or maybe even hundreds of things that they're wanting to solve as they move into the cloud. And they want to try and fix them all at once or they want to try and kind of implement them all at once. And I always tell the customers the same thing. Like, you can't do 100 things in your organization. It's just, it's too much stuff. So you need to pick the, the first three most important things that give you the, the biggest benefit. And typically that is federating identities and getting away from long-lived access keys, making sure you've got visibility and monitoring enabled and going somewhere, and understanding what the coarse grain guardrails are to give people in the development teams access to build, but without the ability to fundamentally change the security posture of environments. And those are all foundational security configurations. So starting off with like, what do the guardrails look like now? And typically that's, you know, don't give people the, the ability to turn off guard duty or stop cloud trail or you know, create IAM principles with broad permission sets attached to them. And then once you get people building, you can see how they're building and you can look at what enables them to build more efficiently. And you can tune your guardrails to be more in line with what you know now. And that iterative approach is super important. And it also means that you can get going and you can build things and you can separate environments. And also you can deliver your consistent security foundations across all of the things you build. Because security foundations, that's super important because you can't train your advanced models if you don't have logging turned on. <laughs> exactly. The, the basics need to be done. I think, I think there's a few things there. I think firstly, you know, we need to remember that we can have different security postures and, and boundaries in different environments, you know, sandpit versus yeah. dev versus test versus prod. But also, you know, when, when we're finding teams running into those um, policy barriers, if you like, you know, the, the quote unquote old school model as well sucks to be you. You can't do that. Computer says no. Whereas really what we're saying is that in a more uh, progressive security posture, we say, well, gee, a lot of teams are wanting to do X. We're not permitting it. Let's analyze that and see what their outcome is they're trying to get to. And do we either A, enable them to do it or find an alternative that is acceptable rather than just saying no. This is yeah, this whole not being the department of no. It's a, it's a kind of a state where the thing that you're triggering with the, the security org is that, oh, multiple teams are trying to do task X. This is something where I can get a lot of value where, it, where I provide that as a capability because I don't necessarily need people to have like, 21 versions of an identity stack or 21 different ways of plumbing monitoring in. That's something that as a platform team or as a security team, if I provide that capability, people are just going to use it and then they can focus on building the applications. And I've driven consistency of foundational security capability. So being receptive to feature requests, essentially, in terms of... Uh, what are the things that the teams that I'm supporting as a security person need to help them more consistently build the applications in alignment with the security objectives of the organization is the question that I'm really asking myself. 
And I think that that's the right way to look at it. Now, in terms of a, a sort of a tactical thing to do or something you can do today, uh, one thing I'd recommend is, is jumping into Security Hub. Um, I did this myself uh, for one of my AWS accounts just recently, and, and I was a blown away by how much it's evolved over time and all the things it brings to mind. But also, it reminded me of that T-shirt. I'm sure you've seen it, Paul, where it says, "You know, go away, or I'll replace you with a very small shell script." Um, I feel like solution architects like yourself and myself, in a good way, have been replaced by that very small shell script in the form of Security Hub. Of rather than having to sit down with Mr. Paul Hawkins for ten hours to learn all about security, you just go to this one place and it tells you the best way to do things for your environment. Yeah, and Security Hub's really good because it gives you, you know, across multiple accounts, a view of the posture of your environment. And in its most simple form, you look at the red stuff and you start off with that because that's the, the highest priority. And Security Hub is a good aggregation point to a, a bunch of other services. So Inspector feeds into it, GuardDuty feeds into it, IAM Access Analyzer feeds into it, uh, Firewall Manager field feeds into it, Macy feeds into it. So it's a good place to get information about a, a bunch of different things that are, are running in your AWS environment and gives you a, a prioritized view of the things that you need to focus on. And the other thing is it, you know, it's got a whole bunch of different packs that are aligned with different compliance frameworks. It's got you know, CIS benchmarks and AWS foundational best practices that will give you guidance in particular areas as well. So it's, and I'm, I'm entirely happy if Security Hub replaces a lot of the conversations I have. So then customers don't need to talk to me. They can self-serve it and they can make good decisions on their own. Spot on. And how, if, if I'm an organization, let's maybe tackle this from two perspectives. If I'm a small org or I'm a large org, how do I know if I'm doing this well? Like, how do I know that my culture's right, that things are flowing right? Like, what, what should I be looking for as a, as a hallmark or a measure or a characteristic? Um, I think it's, it's probably pretty common for a small org or a large org. Are the people who are building workloads actually talking to the security folks? And are the security people in your organization, which for a large organization could be a, a, a group of people, for some of our smaller customers, it could be one person who's wearing multiple hats and is doing 27 different things. But is the, the objectives of the security org well communicated? If I go and ask a developer who's building a workload, where do you know where to get the information about what you're supposed to do? And if they say, oh, yeah, I go to the wiki that the security teams put up and they say, here are the kind of top five principles that we align with. And if I need help, I've got someone I can ticket or I've got a, a Slack channel I can jump into to ask some questions. That's an example that you're building that mechanism that enables a collaborative security culture. If I go and ask the security people, you know, how many applications are shipping? You know, how are you how are you understanding what you need to do to better enable people and the answer is is not oh well you know I, I have a regular cadence with some developers and we've got a mechanism of getting feature requests it's just a case of no we work in an ivory tower or we work separately that's an indication that the, the culture is maybe not so good if you know, the security folks are not talking to the platform folks are not talking to the business and not talking to the developers so really i think it's the, the that measure is again that collaboration and and if you're not experiencing that collaboration it starts with a coffee or it starts with lunch or it starts with donuts. <laughs> I think you know, humans come together well over food and I think the bringing together and breaking of bread together is, uh, is probably not a bad place to start if you're not experiencing that culture. Yeah, and in my previous role, one of the things that was, that was really successful was sitting down with one of the enterprise DevOps people who was you know, trying to build a bunch of stuff and we had coffee and I said to them, 
what's the thing that you know, you're trying to solve here? What's the specific you know, technology problem you're trying to solve? And what does good look like for you? And then they said to me, you know, what does security actually care about? Like, what are you trying to do here? And we, we go through the process and we get feedback, but what's the overall goal of the security org when it comes to looking at applications that are being built and shipped? And just having that conversation meant that we understood that we're basically trying to solve the same thing. We did drink several coffees, which is always excellent. Um, <laughs> but we came up with a, all right, we'll, we'll just, we'll, we'll keep in touch and we'll, we'll kind of collaborate on this. And then that pervaded through the, the rest of the organization in terms of, oh, you can go and speak to this. Some people in the security team are actually friendly and they're going to help you. They're not going to immediately say no. So that was a good starting point for that particular organization. And then it just gets momentum and you do more of it and you build communities of practice and you get developers talking to security people at their team standups and you get security people represented in dev communities of practice. And it's just getting that cross collaboration of knowledge and empathy that you know, people have got a different frame of reference, but ultimately they're just trying to ship. Exactly. And, and I think the, the reality is when you see it happening, it feels really good. It feels really good when you see, see it working the way it should. You're like, aha, uh -huh, that's what good looks like. Yeah, and humans actually like helping other people. It's a good feeling when somebody comes to you and says, um, your existing kind of standards and patterns don't really fit the thing that I'm trying to do because we're using a new language or we're using a new technology. I kind of understand where we're trying to get to from an organizational perspective, but I'm not sure how to do it. And you sit down and you help someone kind of solve an architecture or come up with a, a creative solution or realize there's some existing things that they can consume, but they're going to have to build some stuff. And you come out with a, a plan to solve the problem that meets the, you know, the developer where they are in terms of this is how we build and release software, but meets the needs of the organization in terms of when we're protecting our customer data, we're maintaining customer trust, and we're raising the bar for security for the stuff that we build. I mean, it's a good outcome on, on both sides. Yep, everyone can win. Paul, thanks so much for coming on the show again and uh, sharing some more of your knowledge. Thank you very much. It's great to speak to you again. And thanks everyone for listening. We do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com is one way to do it. The other way is to jump on our webpage and leave an audio note as well. You can do that. And we'd love to hear from our listeners. And until next time, keep on building.